Well, this morning our text is Revelation chapter 4, and that's two weeks in a row in Revelation, so I know what to make of that. Uh, last week we wrapped up our short series on the resurrection and its truth and its implications. And today we're considering the Trinity or beginning a few-week study of the Trinity in preparation of Trinity Sunday and looking over the next couple weeks at the persons of the Trinity. Our catechism question might be helpful here as a nice little hook, a little reminder, uh, or a, a way to hold on to a good definition of the Trinity. The catechism asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's easy to, 30 words, 30 words. Easy to remember, just with a little bit of effort. But good, a good, succinct, there's much more to say about the Trinity, but it's a nice, succinct definition of the Trinity that pulls together a couple things. One, the oneness of God. There is only one God. But also, the fact that the unity of God, the oneness of God, is itself plural. That God is one in being, but he is, he is, three persons. And there's challenges here. Perhaps in Sunday school we can address that. But the catechism question, how, our answer helps us hold on to these things. There are three persons in the Godhead. There are not three gods, and there's not one person. There's not one person who acts three different ways. There are three persons in the one Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one God. The same in substance. The Father and Son and Spirit are equal in every way to each other. The same in substance, equal in power and in glory. So that's good to hold on to as we think over the next few weeks on the persons of the Trinity to hold that little definition in the back of your head. Now, while they are equal in power and glory, they have different roles, or at least together in the compact of the Trinity, uh, they share responsibility. That the Father has a particular role, though all three are never uh, separated from the other. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Go read John. John's gospel is big on this reality of the, the relation between the persons and the Godhead. The Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. Yet, the Father sends the Son. And the Son does the will of his Father who sent him. And the Father and the Son together send the Spirit, the Comforter, to the church. And the Spirit, Jesus says, will teach you all things regarding me. I mean, so... So there's this interrelation <clears throat> within the persons of the Trinity, different roles that they have, but nonetheless, they are equal in power and glory. And so we, we, need to, we need to maintain this as we talk about the different members of the Trinity. But we're going to take a week on each just to reflect upon the nature of the persons, the role of the persons in the Godhead. And again, we can talk about this more in Sunday School if you like, about the Trinity. Again, there's nothing, I, 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 I um, forget what it was, maybe an Easter or something, I sent my students out, I'm trying to remember in theology class, I gave them an assignment to think about something, 
And I told them, honestly, I don't care what else you have to do this weekend. I don't care what else you do. There's nothing that will be a better investment of your time than to set your mind on this truth. And, and, and this is true of the Trinity. There is nothing you have to think about today that is worth more of your attention than this. Nothing. I don't care how important you think it is. There is nothing worth thinking about more this week than the nature of the Trinity. You say, oh, but that's hard. It's worth it. This is our God that we're talking about. This is the one that we will spend all eternity worshiping with pure, unadulterated delight, never-ending delight. There is nothing, I don't care how important you think it is today, worth more of your attention than this. And I don't mean my sermon. I mean the topic, the subject. If you find the Trinity hard, go read about it. Think about it. Delight to know your God. Be willing to have deep thoughts that make a little bit of smoke come out of your ears because it's hard stuff. You're worshiping and you're delighting in and you're studying an infinite God. You are not going to wrap your mind around him. Nonetheless, you can delight. You can observe. You can study. You can think. You can say, yes, but I want to know more. The investment is worth it. There's nothing more worthy of your attention than thinking about the Trinity. Imagine if we gave time to our day or to our week to reading about the Trinity, to thinking about our triune God. It would affect our lives for sure. Well, you heard the text read to you. If we were in a class, if I was teaching a class at Chapel Field, or again, if we were doing this for Sunday school, I would pause after the reading of the text and I might ask you, what struck you about this text? What image stood out to you? What are some of the images you noticed in the text that was read? Because here we're at the beginning of John's vision. The first three chapters of Revelation, as we talked about last week, are the address to the churches. The, the, the whole book of Revelation was given as a, as a circuit letter sent to seven churches in Turkey. John is writing on the island of Patmos, which is an island just off of the coast of Turkey. And the letter is being sent over, and it starts in uh, Ephesus, and it will make its way circularly through the western end of Turkey. Seven churches will have this letter brought to them and read to them. And they will sit as the whole letter gets read, all 22 chapters. Maybe we should try that sometime. <laughs> just having me read the letter to you, that's how they would have heard it. They would have sat and heard the vision. And what would have been awesome about that, and it's not a bad thing to do if you have the time to do it, uh, what would be awesome about that is you would get the whole tapestry, the whole picture of Revelation in one sitting. You would be, the first time you'd miss all kinds of things, all kinds of images would be washing over you, but you'd also be making connections because, hey, wait, I heard that there and, I, and you're reconnecting here and you'd be making all kinds of connections. It'd be a wonderful thing. But this letter was to be given to these seven churches and so the beginning of Revelation is an address to these seven particular churches. Now the vision proper begins in chapter 4. John is ushered up in a vision. Remember we said Revelation is not a photograph of the things that are or will be. Revelation is not meant to say, okay, hey, here's what you should look for, an actual beast with, 
you know, seven heads rising up out of the sea. When you see that, you know you're pretty close to the end. Right? Know that, that or when, when these things are being poured out of heaven and, and there's hailstones, 100 pounds each, you know, okay, we're getting toward the end here. That's not how Revelation is to be read. Revelation is a vision. Not telling you, a, not giving you a photograph of what is, but giving you the interpretation of what is. It's telling you what really is. That's why I prayed, Lord, keep us from being deceived by our five senses, by being, by, by being deceived by the limitations of our five senses. Our five senses tell us truth. The problem is they don't tell us the whole truth. You look at me, you make judgments about me by how I look or how I act and how I talk. But the problem is your five senses can't get to the true me. They tell you something true about me. You can then make assumptions. You can make judgments based on that, but they can't tell you everything, right? We know this. We're, we're souls, too. There's more to me than just what you see or hear or so forth. And so our, our, our senses are not deceiving us, but the limitations of them can deceive us. If you think they give us the final reality. Revelation is meant to say, to rip the veil of reality and let you look behind and see what really is. So, this is a vision. John, in this vision, is taken up into heaven. He's ushered through this door and at the very beginning describes for us what he sees. <coughs> and what we get, the vision begins with a description of the throne room of God. Again, is this what heaven will look like? We read too much in if we think that's the case. Though who knows? I'm not prepared to say it won't. I, I'm, I'm just telling you how visions work. But there's something, there, there are many takeaways from this vision that we should have. And again, I would ask you in a Sunday school class, what images struck you as Mark read? Well, let me just kind of jog through the text and pull a few out and let's think about them because here we get a glimpse of God the Father. In chapter 5, we're going to get a glimpse of God the Son, the Lamb slain. Well, that's not going to be our text for next week, but we start to get Jesus Christ introduced. But in chapter 4, we get a vision of the Father. So let's just pick up a couple of these images and reflect on them for a second. So the first thing <clears throat> that we have in verse 2, so he's the door's open, he hears a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. I will show you the things which must take place. And then verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne sit, uh, set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now what's interesting, we don't get any description of God in this text, which is great. We have no sort of physical features or these kinds of things of God, but we have these descriptions of what God is doing or what's happening around him. And this text begins, the first thing he sees is a throne. And we referenced this last week because last week's text in Revelation 20, we saw a throne again, the great white throne of judgment. And we commented on the fact that Revelation, the vision that John gets, begins with a throne and ends with a throne. That God is Alpha and he's Omega. He rules over all. He is God at the beginning, and he is God at the end, and therefore he is God over everything that takes place in between. And when you read Revelation, a lot of the stuff that takes place in between is really scary stuff. It's really troubling. There are beasts. There's dragons. There's judgment. 
There's martyrdom. There's suffering. Suffering, suffering, and more suffering. The story of Revelation is a hard story. Jesus, in, in, as he gives the vision here to John, is interpreting the reality the church is going to go through, but the reality the church is going to go through is a hard reality. They are going to be trampled. They're going to have war made against them. The dragon will be after them. The beast will seek to crush them. The harlot will seek to seduce them only to destroy them. This is the reality that John is giving us, that Jesus is giving John, about the life of the church. It's hard. This is the age we live in. The big mistake people make when they read the book of Revelation is think, this is a story about the end times, like the last couple of years before Christ comes. Huge mistake. The book of Revelation is a vision of this age in which we live. Do you have eyes to see it? Do you see the beasts? Can you spot the harlot? If you can't, you're really going to be susceptible to some serious problems. John is helping us. Jesus is helping us have eyes to see. And the nature of this time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ is one fraught with trouble for the church and affliction, martyrdom, suffering, temptation, trial, all these things. John's going to see some difficult, challenging, scary things. But at the very beginning, John is to have for himself as his anchor point that there is one seated on a throne in heaven. He is seated on his throne. I don't care what hell swirls around us. I don't care what trouble the church goes through and how many question marks it raises in our heads, and there will be many. Our anchor point that keeps us from drifting off into apostasy, that causes, keeps us from drifting off into, in, in, into anger, into doubt, into all these kinds of things, anxieties, our anchor point that tethers us, that holds us, is the fact that God is seated on his throne. He is never taken off that throne. He's on the throne in chapter 4, and when we spot him again in chapter 22, or 21, or 20, there he is on his throne still. John is taken up into heaven, and he sees the Lord God seated <clears throat> on a throne. And there, also to help us, I think, uh, in, with this same image, is the fact that before this throne, and in front of this throne, is, we're told, is a sea of glass. This is interesting because in, in Revelation, and really throughout the Bible, the sea, and when we went through Revelation, we made this point, that the sea, as a metaphor, is the symbol of chaos and disorder and raging against God. That the sea is a metaphor. The psalmist will often speak about being overcome by the billows and the waves. The, the, the waves represent the clamoring of the people against God and against his anointed. The sea, and hence in Revelation, the beast comes up out of the sea. The sea represents chaos. The sea represents disorder. The sea represents rebellion against God. It's not that the ocean is bad. It's not that the things in the sea are evil. It's just that the sea is a biblical metaphor for evil, for chaos, for darkness. But here in the throne room of God, we're told that before this throne is a sea of glass. That is to say, because what we're going to see when we come back down 
out of heaven into the vision there that's happening on earth. Again, the sea rages. The beast that is going to seek to destroy the church is going to, uh, the beast is going to come up out of that sea to destroy his church. And again, it's going to overwhelm us. Unless we again go back to our anchor point, where in heaven is seated God upon his throne, and in front of him is a sea of glass. That the sea before his throne is perfectly calm. It has been subdued. It has been reined in. This goes all the way back to the very beginning, the first verses of the Bible. In the very first verses of the Bible, we get some interesting metaphors, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty. And darkness was on the face of the deep, the waters. Darkness and waters. Darkness was on the face of the deep. But what else was there in those first few verses? And the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And then God begins in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And God brings light into the darkness. But notice in the very beginning, we have waters, these deep waters, and the Spirit of God is hovering over them. That even the depth of the waters, the chaos of the sea, at the very beginning, is underneath the sovereign authority of God. And it's very interesting that when you get to the end of Revelation, we're told on the new heavens and the new earth, remember, they flee away, they fled away last week in chapter 20. They couldn't be in his presence. But I said they're going to exit, but they're going to come back. God's going to make all things new. And when we get this beautiful vision description of the new heavens and the new earth, we're told, and there was no sea. I commented then, it doesn't mean there will be no ocean in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know. But when he says there will be no sea, he doesn't mean there will be no ocean and no beaches. And oh my goodness, I, you know, I don't know what it would be like in heaven if we can't go to the ocean. But that's not what he means there. There's something much deeper going on there. There was no sea. And by the way, Christina's reading Elie Wiesel's book, The Night, about the, the, the Holocaust, right? Elie Wiesel going through, going through the Holocaust and, and appropriately entitles his book Night. But it's interesting, too, in the new creation, there will be no night. In the beginning, there's darkness on the face of the deep, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no sea and there will be no darkness, no night, right? And the point is not there will not be literal you know, movement of planets. I don't know. Maybe there won't be. Maybe there literally will be no night. Maybe there will literally be no sea. I don't know. But I know what he's talking about in Revelation. And what he's saying is all the powers of rebellion, all the forms of chaos and rebellion against God will be utterly cast out by our God. And the foretaste of that given to us in Revelation 4 is that before his throne is a sea of glass. No waves, no raging before him, utter peace and calm. That's in verse 6, by the way. Before, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Our God has all things under control. I know from below the sea it looks rough, but just know that in heaven God is not phased.
by, again, the hell that's swirling around us from time to time. Our God is in utter and sovereign control. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the midst of the chaos that maybe we go through in our own lives, by the chaos we see every time we turn on the news, that our God has his purposes, he lets the dragon go as far as his leash lets him. He lets the beast rage for whatever time he will. But once the time is up, it's over. And we've seen the dragon is taken and thrown into the lake of fire. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. The beast is thrown into the lake of fire with the harlot. We may not know why God allows certain evil to befall us. We might not know why God allows this particular storm to kick up. I don't know why he tells Satan, sure, go ahead, go after Job's family. I don't know. I don't know why in Exodus 3 he says to, to, uh, to Moses, hey, I'm going to send you in there to get my people out, but Pharaoh's probably not going to let you go. So I'm going to make it rough on him, and eventually he will. Like, but you're God. You're God. Why did you let it go 10 plagues? Why, did, why not just first time out? You could strike Pharaoh dead right there. I don't know why in your purposes you wanted to draw it out through 10 plagues, except for the fact that he does say, I raised you up for this purpose that my name might be made great. And in his infinite and eternal and good wisdom, that's the way he chose to do it. But what I do know is that God, seated on his throne, even as Moses is trying to negotiate this deal with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh seems to be like the sea raging against Moses and not letting him and trying to raise his fist to God, I know what's going on in heaven. God's not going, oh, gee whiz, I thought that plague would work, you know, and all right, what, what else can I dig out of my bag of tricks? Okay, you know what? Gnats. Okay, lice. Nah. Okay, frogs. What's it going to take? That's not what's happening in heaven. What's happening in heaven is God is seated on his throne and before him a sea of glass. Perfect peace. Nothing flustering him, nothing frustrating his purposes. Our God, our Father, is seated on a throne and before him all things are calm and peaceful. And we need to trust that when we're in the midst of a raging sea. So we see a throne. That's one image. We see a sea of glass. Another image that perhaps struck you is in verse 3. And he who sat on the throne was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So John gets to see in here, and it's overwhelming. All he can see are, are colors. But what he does notice is that around the throne is a rainbow. And what's that about? Of course, we know. Remember we said that when we read Revelation, the lens that we need in order to see it, to understand, the lingo you need to have in the back of your head in order to get the metaphors like baseball, hey, you really knocked that out of the park. If you don't know anything about baseball, sorry, you're not going to get that image. Hey, that's your third strike. Well, if you don't know baseball, it means nothing to you. If you don't know the Bible, then what the heck is a rainbow doing up there? Except just, oh, it's beautiful. But of course, we know. We have ears to hear. We know our Bibles. And when we hear rainbow, we think Noah. We hear rainbow, we think God's covenantal promises. Here he gets into the throne room, and he's overwhelmed by the glory of it. But there around the throne, this sovereign God is a covenantal, a promise-keeping God. 
right there at the throne is the rainbow. Right there on the throne is a symbol of his covenant to his people. That God made promises to his people and he will keep them. He's a saving God. And that's why it's interesting too in this text that not only does he see a throne with this rainbow around it, but then, verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw the 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their head. Think about that. We're in the throne room of God and what John notices is God's throne but he also sees these little other thrones that God is sharing his throne room. He's sharing space. With who? With us. With the elders. Right? With his creatures. He's letting his creatures sit on thrones in his throne room. Now again, the last letter to the seven churches is to Laodicea. And in that letter, each letter has a pattern. And in each letter, he makes a promise at the end of it. To you who overcome, that is to you who take this stuff to heart and overcome by faith, I will give. And there's something distinct to each church. But what's really important to know is that numbers are very symbolic in Revelation. And the number seven is meant to connote completeness, fullness. And so the fact that this is given to seven churches is not like random, like, hey, I want you to send this to all the churches in Western Turkey. Oh, sure, okay, how many are there? Uh, uh, there's seven. Send it to, no, it's not that. When he says send it to seven churches, these seven, yes, it's two particular churches, but what he's saying, this is for the whole church. This is for the sevenfold church. This letter is given, and all the promises, therefore, at the end of each letter are not like, okay, only Laodicea gets that promise. Only Sardis gets that promise. The fact that there's seven promises means this is for the church, right? All these things are for all the saints. And here, to the church of Laodicea, the promise at the end is staggering because he says, and I, to you who overcome, I will give to sit on my throne with me as my father gave it to me to sit on his throne with him. That is, I will give to you, creatures. I will give to you, dust of the earth. I will give to you, sinners, the privilege of sitting on my throne with me. I mean, here are the saints. These guys are sinners. They're just like you. But notice, they're sitting on thrones. They're wearing crowns. They've been robed in white robes, clothed, as was one of the promises. These are all promises in the seven churches. You can go back and read it. They've been clothed and crowned and seated on thrones. That is, God is keeping his promise, his unbelievable promises to them. We see it right here. John gets a vision of the covenant-keeping God, keeping his promise to miserable sinners like us. There they are, seated before his presence and worshiping him. So we see a throne, we see a sea of glass, we see a rainbow, we see the saints enthroned with him and clothed in white and crowned. And then we also see worship. 
we see worship. We see the four living creatures praising him perpetually, taking up the same vision that Isaiah got in Isaiah chapter 6 as our call to worship this morning when Isaiah, in a vision, found himself within the temple in the year King Uzziah died, and there the veil of reality gets ripped back, and there is God seated again on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, smoke filling the temple, the thresholds are shaking, an earthquake breaks out, and what are the seraphim doing? Flying around the presence of God, singing, just as being sung here by the four living creatures, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And when they would do this, the 24 elders fall on their face. They take their crowns off and they throw them at the feet of God. <clears throat> What, a, what an awesome thing to be given a crown. What an awesome thing to be seated on a throne. Yet still, these now redeemed saints know that our crowns are all glory to you. All glory be given to you. And so they take them off and they cast them at the feet of God, at the throne of God. And they fall off their thrones and lay prostrate before God, giving all praise and honor to him as the four living creatures are circling and singing. The worship of God by his people and by his creation. And of course, here it's all creation represented in the four living creatures for a symbolic number for the things of the earth. But the four living creatures circling around and giving praise to God. And they worship him. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on his, the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their thrones before uh, their, their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Again, notice the worship and the praise. They praise him for his creation, his work of creation, but also for his sovereign providence. All things that exist, exist by your will. And we're going to see, though we're not going to, but go read Revelation, there's some scary things that exist. But even the dragon, even the beast, even the harlot exists by the will of God. They have no power in and of themselves. He is utterly sovereign over all of them. And the minute he has, they have fulfilled his purposes, into the lake of fire they go. Pharaoh exists by the purpose and will of God. And when it's over, it's over. And their bodies wash up on the Red Sea, on the shore of the Red Sea. But God is sovereign over all these things. So we see perpetual worship centered around the throne by all creation worshiping him. And then finally, and for this I want to go back to the very beginning. An image we see is the image of a door. The way that the text begins is after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of the trumpet, that is Jesus, to go back to Revelation 1, 
And the, verse, the, the, the first voice which I had heard would sound like a trumpet with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things that must take place. The balance that I referenced earlier, I want to come back to here now. Because the God that is seated on this throne, the God before whom all things are in perfect order, the God before whom all creation must worship, and before whom all creation lays prostrate, the, the God who sits on this throne, who is holy, 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 perfect in infinite holiness, is the God who says, come up here, come to me who throws the door to his throne room open and says, you are welcomed in here. The author of Hebrews leans on this same language when he says that we are called to come boldly before his throne of grace. Jesus picks up on this same image when he says, I am the way. I am the door to get to the Father. You must come in through me, but you are welcome to come. This God, the unapproachable God, the one before whom no one is able to stand, is the one who says to you, you may call me Father. Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, says pray this way. He commands us to pray this way. Not, though it would have been utterly appropriate, not Oh, heavenly sovereign one. Though he is that. Not, oh, eternal God who was and is and is to come. That would have been utterly appropriate. Not even, I am. But he says, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, whose name is to be hallowed, and is being hallowed, whether you're doing it or not, it is being hallowed 24-7 by the four living creatures who can't even look upon him because they have to cover their face with their, with their wings. Oh, his name is being hallowed. And we just ask, oh Lord, do it because you are so glorious. But Jesus says, pray to him this way, our Father. He reveals himself to us as a Father. First Peter begins this way. And the Trinitarian name that we're given, that we're baptized into, is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. When Jesus, excuse me, when Moses asks at the burning bush, yeah, but they're going to say to me, you met with God? Then he must have given you his name. What's his name? Moses says, what am I supposed to tell them? And God gives the inexplicable name the name that cannot be contained, the name that cannot be defined. There's no limits to it. Just, I am. Like, you can't, I'm not going to give you any name. I'm not going to give you any way to define me. No box to put me in. Here's my name. I am. Deal with it. But then he goes on to say, again, this is the holy God before whom, as Moses approaches, he must take off his sandals. God is so holy that this ground now becomes holy. Therefore, take off your sandals as you stand before me. What's your name? I am. But he does not leave them with that. Go back and read the text. 
He says, I am, that's my name. You tell them I am sent you. And he said, also tell them this. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is my name. You tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you. I've always marveled at that. Because I am would have been sufficient and it would have been humbling and indescribable and undefinable and worthy of God. But God does not leave it there in the indescribable and undefinable. He then says, oh yeah, and here's my name too. You know what my name is? I'm their God. That's my name. I'm Isaac's God. That's my name. Abraham's God. He takes them. And I believe we in them because I think what he's saying, he's the God of the fathers, but I'm the God of this people. I'm the God of this church that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. I'm their God. That's my name. I'm their father. That's who I am. It's humbling to think that the God who does not need us the God who is infinitely glorious and infinitely content before you were ever created chooses in his grace to include you in his very name. He has revealed himself as Father. And yes, he's the Father of the only begotten Son, but what we find out in the Bible is through the only begotten Son, he is Father because he's your Father. We are the Son's and daughters of Almighty God. And so we need to maintain this amazing balance. He's our Father, but He's the thrice Holy Father. He's your Father before whom you can run in and jump on His lap and cry out, Abba. He's the one that you can make your request to. I remember John Piper saying, who, who possibly, this is when Barack Obama was, uh, was president, and he said, who possibly who in the world could ask the President of the United States for a glass of water at 2 in the morning and expect the President to get out of bed and get him or her a glass of water? No one, no one, no world leader, no authority, no cabinet member, no citizen, no one except his daughters, except his children. His children have access to him that can make such a request and the President of the United States would get up and get a glass of water for them but for no one else and brothers and sisters you and I have access to our Father an access that is a privilege beyond all privileges a privilege that no one nothing else in all creation has that this God is the same God that we, in our intercessory prayer today, could go to and say, Father, would you remember Bobby? We fumbled our way into his presence today, into the presence of this very God, and said, would you remember Bobby? Would you remember our friends who are traveling? And all the other requests we've made over all the years of our praying here. And every time you pray, you're doing the exact same thing. You're going to the God of gods, the king of all creation, and asking for a glass of water. 
And the Father says, you're welcome to ask me that. Come boldly into my throne of grace. May God give us eyes to balance the thrice holiness of our God. Lest we take lightly the privilege that we have with, on the other hand, the fact that this thrice holy God is in fact our Father and welcomes us in as his children and shares his throne with us. It's what we have to look forward to one day. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are humbled before you. We are humbled because you are the God above all things. You are the God before whom all things are like a sea of glass. You are the God before whom all creation falls prostrate. You are the God that we can't even look at. John can't describe it because he can't see through the radiance of your glory. And yet you are the God who, who includes us in his name. Who chooses to reveal himself as father because we're his children. The God who throws open the door to his throne room and welcomes us to come in. As unclean as we are as rebellious as we've been to come into your throne room, to throw ourselves on your lap and to make our requests before you. Father, I pray that you would do two things for us. I pray that you would flatten us before your presence, that like Moses, you would cause us to take off our shoes. Like the 24 elders, you would cause us to fall flat on our face. That like Isaiah, you would call us to see us in all of our sin in the light of your holiness. Yet at the same time, I ask that you would lift our heads, that you would remind us again of the amazing privilege we have to stand in your presence, for we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are loved by you and welcomed into your throne room. Help us to balance those two realities, we pray. And Lord, give us focus to think upon to delight in the nature of the Trinity. It's way too deep for us. It's infinite, but it's worth it. So give us fortitude to study, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.